Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, changing the language of addiction. Not uncommon to hear somebody wrestling with addiction be, be called a junkie or a crackhead. How stigma affects the treatment that people face and the new push to change that. Plus, the new study raising concerns about the psychiatric care that veterans may be receiving. And what Twitter can tell us about nutritional health disparities. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, October 20th, 2016. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomirum. And we'll get to those stories in a few minutes, but first, a quick look at some of the top health headlines this week. It may take several months before cities, counties, and states across the U.S. receive money to fight Zika virus. Last month, Congress approved $1.1 billion to develop a vaccine, to study the effects of Zika, and to expand mosquito control efforts. But according to NBC News, most of that money won't be distributed until the beginning of next year. That's because local and state officials will have to bid on the money, and then the federal government will decide who receives what. We do know that about $400 million will go to the CDC, which will then distribute that to various state and local agencies. So far, the CDC has reported that 2,600 pregnant women in U.S. states and territories have been infected with Zika. 23 babies have been born with birth defects caused by Zika, and five were miscarried or aborted because of severe birth defects. In other news, the WHO is warning this week that war-torn Yemen is on the verge of a cholera epidemic. The organization says there have been 340 cases of intestinal infection, marked by diarrhea and dehydration, and 18 cases have been linked to cholera. WHO is appealing for $22 million from its global health partners to stop the spread of the disease. It's estimated that two-thirds of Yemeni residents, about 7.6 million people, don't have access to clean water and sanitation services due to ongoing fighting. Women who've been vaccinated against human papillomavirus, or HPV, may be able to start cervical cancer screenings later in life and have them less often. That's according to a new study from the Harvard Chan School. Current guidelines in the U.S. recommend a cervical cancer screening every three years, but researchers say those screenings may only need to occur every five to ten years, starting at age 25 or 30, because the risk of cervical cancer among women who have been vaccinated is so low. Junkie, crackhead, substance abuser. Those are the words often used to describe those wrestling with addiction. And that language can increase stigma, making it harder for people to seek and receive treatment. But there's a new push to change the language surrounding addiction. Writing in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Howard Coe, the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health at the Harvard Chan School, and Michael Botticelli, Director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, are shining a light on the effects of stigmatizing language. And Coe says that stigma can make people embarrassed or even afraid to seek care. Well, we know that stigma isolates people. It uh, prevents people for, from coming forward to seeking treatment. Uh, there have been national studies saying that some 22 million people in this country need specialty treatment for uh, alcohol or other illicit drug disorders. But 90% of those people do not get the treatment they need and deserve. And many of them are held back because of the fear of stigma from family, from neighbors, from employers. So they have to suffer alone when good and effective treatment is available to them. There's also a substantial body of research showing how stigmatizing language can affect the care that doctors provide. 
Michael Botticelli told us about research conducted by John Kelly of Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital that illustrated exactly how language influences perception of addiction. He actually gave two almost identical vignettes to a number of trained uh, mental health and substance use clinicians. And the, the only variation of the two vignettes was in one, he referred to the uh, person as a substance abuser. And in the other, uh, he referred to it as a person with a substance use disorder. And, and what he found was that even among trained clinicians, when you refer to someone as a substance abuser, it, it elicited a much more punitive response than a therapeutic response. There have already been some changes in the way addiction is talked about in the medical and public health communities. For example, substance abuse disorder has been replaced by substance use disorder. The key goal of Botticelli and Kose is making it clear that addiction is a disease, not a choice or a moral failing. And it's a personal issue for Botticelli, who is in recovery and has grappled with the fear and embarrassment linked to addiction. I knew that I needed help with my alcohol use, that I, you know, I had a significant problem. And I also recall that I was very embarrassed and ashamed to ask for help. And you go through this rationalization that I had a good job at Brandeis University. I had a couple degrees that, you know, how, how can I be a person who has a substance use disorder? What will people think of me? Will they think that I am stupid or that I'm weak-willed? And, so, and I know that I am not alone in that experience. You start internalizing the messages and the language that you hear reflected at you. We can in some way uh, have people, you know, understand through the language that we use that they have a disease, that, you know, we might see people asking for care earlier and being willing to step forward, that professionals are likely to treat people with more care and compassion, and, and that it enhances the probability that we'll be making kind of good public policy based on how we uh, perceive people with addiction. Changing language is one step toward reducing stigma, but Cohen Botticelli say there is work to be done in other areas. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008 requires that insurers cover mental health and substance use disorders on par with physical conditions. But a recent report from the Department of Labor found that healthcare plans are still imposing limits on these treatments, often making patients endure less effective therapies before providing the care recommended by the federal government. Coe says that changing language is an important first step to shifting how addiction is viewed by not only the medical community, but the public in general. For too long, this whole area has been dehumanized, and the criminal justice system has been the primary source for uh, treatment and care. And we need more of a public health discussion here, more of a medical approach to these issues. And so we are hoping that over time, more and more people will view this as a health issue and uh, treat it uh, in collaboration with medical professionals. And that especially uh, means uh, mental health providers and substance use disorder providers. We need to improve outreach and support for people who are wrestling uh, with these issues. There are lots of families that feel so isolated. Uh, we should send the message that this is a medical condition of brain disorder that can be treated, that people can enter recovery, that there are resources available. Uh, none of this is easy, but we have to start uh, understanding that this is a medical condition and not a moral failing. If you'd like to read the piece written by Howard Coe and Michael Botticelli, we'll have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. 
research is raising questions about the quality of psychiatric care that veterans may be receiving. The study, authored by Morgan Shields, a 2016 Harvard Chan School graduate and a current doctoral student at Brandeis University, found that hospitals run by the Department of Veterans Affairs are not performing as well as other hospitals when it comes to key measurements of inpatient psychiatric care. Shields, along with Meredith Rosenthal, professor of health economics and policy at the Harvard Chan School, looked at how hospitals performed in several categories. That includes admission screenings of patients to assess their risk of violence, trauma, substance use, and strength, the rate of restraint and seclusion of patients, the percentage of patients discharged on multiple antipsychotic drugs, and the percentage of patients for whom a continuing care plan was created and transferred to their next level of care. What they found was that VA hospitals consistently performed worse than private for-profit and non-profit hospitals, and even other government hospitals in several areas. A striking difference was found with the admission screenings. Those were performed just 61% of the time in VA hospitals, compared to more than 90% of the time in other facilities. Shield says that more work is needed to determine the reasons for these gaps in care, but she says it's concerning because veterans are already a vulnerable population. It's really concerning, especially when we consider this patient population and the increase in suicide and the, the known history of trauma, certainly trauma is likely present in you know, all contexts, but especially when it comes to veterans. I mean, this is something we know for sure and we talk about, and we're not even, we're not even screening for it. It's very concerning when it comes to the care for veterans, of course. I, it's, it's concerning when it comes to the care for anyone, but especially a population that has potentially been very traumatized and could be re-traumatized by the care that they're getting. In light of her recent research, Shields is calling for a national surveillance system for inpatient psychiatric facilities. Recent legislation passed by Congress would establish the Center for Behavioral Health Statistics and Quality. That center would monitor key outcomes and conditions such as the prevalence of psychiatric diagnoses, number of hospitalizations of patients, and the level of criminal justice involvement. But Shields says that that doesn't go far enough. Writing in the journal Health Affairs, she argues that the system should also be used to monitor evidence-based quality indicators in addition to injuries or deaths in psychiatric facilities. If you want to read that piece, we'll have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. Finally, this episode, there is plenty of food talk on Twitter, mostly about everyone's love of coffee. But it turns out those conversations can tell us a lot about health in America. Researchers at the University of Utah looked at 80 million tweets and identified the most tweeted about foods, coffee, beer, pizza, Starbucks, and IPA, a variety of beer. These were the top five. And about 16% of the tweeted about foods were defined as healthy, while 9% mentioned that they were about fast food. Researchers then compared the geographic data about where the tweets were sent from to health surveys and census data. They found that tweets sent from poorer neighborhoods did not tend to mention healthy foods, while areas with more tweets about healthy foods were found to have lower rates of death and chronic disease. Scientists were also able to use this information to gather data on the physical and emotional health of Americans. They say that economically disadvantaged neighborhoods with more fast food restaurants showed lower levels of happiness and fewer healthy behaviors. What's interesting about that top five is that It's really just three items because coffee and Starbucks are the same thing and beer and IP are the same thing. So we know where the heads of Twitter users are at. So coffee, beer, pizza. Right. That's where where we're focused. That's all for this episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. A reminder that you can always listen to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.